in a lot of ways, names are really pretty kind of interesting to look at. As many of you know, I have enjoyed looking at languages for a number of years and really got into it when I was in preaching school as far as the original Koine Greek language is concerned and then got into languages also when we were doing our work in Ukraine. And languages, or with names rather, names are interesting, especially when you think about last names. Normally, well, as populations grew, we were known with our first name, and then ultimately last names came into play. Last names could be based upon location. If you didn't know, my last name, Northrop, is based upon location. It's actually a corruption of the word Norththorpe. And Norththorpe means North Town. And so it was originally called Northtown. So I would have been called Charles of Northtown or something of that nature. There are names that are with reference to, and you've known different ones with reference to, to locations, but then there are also names that are in reference to occupation. I mean, after all, we have a smith here, and there were different types of smiths in the past. And of course, it could be, it could be uh, written in different ways, but normally in American English, we spell it S-M-I-T-H, and a smith could be a worker of metals of different types, could be iron smith or steel smith or silver smiths or different other kinds. And then there are what we call patronymic names. Well, patronymic names are names that are associated with a father of some type or an ancestor. So you have the word or the name Nelson, the son of Nelson or the son of Nell rather, and there was a, if you go back in history, there was a famous Neil, and that's where the name Nelson comes from, Nielsen. And so you also have names like Jackson. There was probably some Jack in Jackson's past that they were named after, or Hudson. Or if you didn't know, the names like McClure or McDonald's, that's what that word means. Muck, it would be, or Mac, can be either way, M-A-C or M-C. And it refers to the son of. And you also have names like Van, the president Van Buren. That word Van is a reference to being the son of. And so those are patronymic names. But then you also had names that refer to followers of people or followers of a particular sect. And you have those in various ways as well. Well, within scripture, interestingly, you have the same kinds of names. You have names that refer to locations like Simon the uh, sorcerer from Samaria or the Philippian jailer or the Ethiopian eunuch. Those are all with reference to localities. You also have names that refer to occupations. You have patron, uh, patronymic names. Most really don't realize this, but like Simon, son of Jonah, or in the King James, Bar-Jonah, 
Simon Bar-Jonah? Well, Bar means son of. And you have other names like Barnabas and Barabbas and different ones like, or not Barabbas, but uh, um, another Bar name. There are several Bar names within Scripture. But you also have names that refer to cities or locations. So we have a letter written to the Romans. And if you actually look at it in the Greek, in the original Old English, it is Romanian uh, rather than Roman. So it's a little bit different than it is the way we do it. We drop the I out of it or the E. Actually, it was in an E in this particular case. But you have the Corinthians. You also have the Galatians. You have the, and the list could go on and on of diff, different ones that we know. But then you also have those that were followers of. Well, first I wanted to talk about the, the occupation. You know, you have Luke the physician. He was, his occupation was a physician. And that's what that refers to. But then you have followers of, like the Herodians. And though we don't see it very often, but there is at least one time where there was a group that was called the Caesarians, uh, uh, that is, the, those that were followers of Caesar. And, of course, we have Caesarea who lived there. Well, the name Christian is similar to that. A name is an identifier. That's really what a name is. Now, so when we talk about names of locality, that's what we're talking about. We're identifying a person of a locality. When we're talking about occupation, we're identifying a person of an occupation. When we're talking about patronymic names, we're talking about a person with that particular father or grandfather or ancestor. And when we're talking about occupations, then we're talking about, or followers rather, we're talking about people that follow certain ones. Now the name Christian is also an identifier. And it is a unique identifier in a lot of different ways. It is descriptive, but it's still an identifier. And I know that sometimes people will say the name Christian means Christ-like, now, I've read a lot of dictionaries through the years, at least ancient dictionaries, and I'm talking about lexicons and dictionaries of the original language, and I've never found that within a, in a dictionary of the original language. Now, I know how they assess that and how they get to it, but it's not actually a part of the definition of it. It simply referred to and identified a follower of Christ, and that's what the word means. Now, I've always found it interesting that people will say something like, and I heard one fellow say it, he said, there is no such thing as an erring Christian. Well, I don't believe that. It is a modifier of the word Christian. It is a Christian a brother in Christ? Yes. Well, we go over to Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1. He, he said, brethren, if any man stray from the truth, let the spiritual restore such a one in spirit of meekness. And so a Christian then can err from the truth. You also have similar language over in the book of, of James, James chapter 5 and specifically verse number 17 or, or 19, I guess it is. I think it's 19. And so it is 
the case that Christians can do that. Well, this brother said, you can't find the term Christian in the word erring in the same passage. Well, you can't find an adjective of the word Christian anywhere. Did you know that the word Christian is only used in three passages? Now, let's look at those three passages and then let's note some other things about it. In, in Acts, the 11th chapter, in verse number 26, there Luke recorded for us, and when, they, and when he had found him, he brought him unto Antioch. And it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the, uh, with the church and taught much people. And the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. So no modifier there, no adjective with reference to it. But then you also add to that Acts the 26th chapter and verse 28. In that particular passage, there it says, Then Agrippa said unto Paul, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. And again, there's no adjective there, none whatsoever. And then the third time the word Christian is used within Scripture is 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse number 16 where Peter wrote, Yet uh, if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. And so you don't find any adjective with reference to Christian within the scriptures. It's used in noun form in every case with no modifiers whatsoever, none whatsoever. However, I found it interesting one brother who were talking about this particular thing and said you can't use the name erring and the word Christian in the same in the same thing will turn around and use the word faithful Christian. And well, you know, if one's wrong, then the other's wrong. If we're going to add a modifier. Now, don't get me wrong, because I truly believe in the old adage that we ought to call Bible things by Bible names in Bible ways. So I don't use the name Christian in, a, in an adjective form like the denominational folks do. They'll talk about a Christian man or a Christian woman or a Christian this or a Christian doctrine or a Christian ch church or a Christian college or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they'll talk about all those different things. Well, you don't find Christian used in that way either. And I believe in using the term Christian as a noun, but not as an adjective. And so instead of Christian or man, I, re I refer to a male Christian. Or instead of a Christian woman, I talk about a female Christian. And et cetera, et cetera, those kind of things. Now, I don't really want to spend the time in looking at just simply the idea of the word Christian, but to note some prophecies concerning the word Christian. Do you realize that there are three, just as there are three uses of the word Christian in the New Testament, you have three prophecies of that term in the book of Isaiah. Now let's turn first to Isaiah chapter 56, and if you will, open your Bibles to that passage, and we're going to spend a little bit of time in that particular passage. In Isaiah 56, and let's look at verse number 5. Isaiah wrote, 
even unto them will I give in mine house and within my walls a place and a name better than of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Well, the name Christian is that everlasting name. And that name then is given to God's household. Now we know that God's household is the church. And in fact, it's pretty simple to understand that the household of God is a reference to the church. So we go over to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse number 15, where Paul said, well, actually, let's start with verse 14. These things write I unto thee, hoping to come to thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God. You also, the house of God then is not with reference to a building. And I, I found it, and I don't know who did this, but in the one of the buildings where I labored, and was a local preacher for we had a narrow hall and so someone put at the end of that narrow hall to behave yourself in the house of God and they were actually a reference to children running down that hall knocking off uh, knocking off or knocking down better with older people well you know that's not what he's talking about he's actually referring to the household of God it's referring to then the way we behave in the household of God in the church. So when you look at the book of First and Second Timothy, that's what he deals with. He talks about how we behave ourselves with reference to false teachers. That's verse or that's chapter one. In reference to men and women, chapter two. In reference to elders and deacons, chapter three. In reference to older people and and and, and widows, in chapter. Four, also in reference to monetary things and physical things in chapter 5. And the list could go on and on. So it's behave yourself in the household of God. Now the word household or the word house, don't think about it like we think about the word house as a physical building, but think about it like we use the word home when you talk about homes for sale. Well, you know, I'm sorry, real estate people can't sell homes, not in the purest sense. And, but, you know, they can sell houses, and that's what they refer to. But don't we use the word home in both reference to the house that the, that the family is, is housed in and also the word family? Well, we use it in both ways, and that's how this particular word is used also. And so it's with reference to the household of God. Also, turn over to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 19. You have a similar statement. Now, therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. Now, if you put that back in context, what he's talking about is the Jews and the Gentiles are part of God's family, part of the household of God. And we are then fellow citizens with the saints as well. So when we consider this idea of the everlasting name, we are then a part of the household of God. Now further, he, he says that 
uh, Isaiah, going back to Isaiah 50 or 65 and verse number 15. Isaiah recorded that it's better than sons and daughters. Now I find that in, that statement pretty interesting in a lot of different ways. Because, you know, when you first read it, you think, well, how is it better than sons and daughters? Well, you know, have you ever done any genealogy work on your family name? Well, I've done genealogy work and it is interesting because among genealogists, they'll say something like, if you really want to find out about your ancestors, run for a political office and somebody else will do the digging and, and they'll discover some what, what's called by the genealogists skeletons in your closet. In other words, what they're talking about, things that you would prefer not to be brought out and to be exposed. Well, sure enough, you go back far enough and you go back long enough, you're going to find skeletons in your closet no matter who you are. But this name is better than that. It's better than sons and daughters. Because the fact is, sometimes sons and daughters, they don't live up to the name that's been given to them. And I've heard different ones say, we have a good name and we don't appreciate anybody that would destroy that name and yet their sons and their daughters then oftentimes will destroy the good reputation of the name of their parents. So it is the case that, that, that it is better than that of sons and daughters. And finally, Isaiah pointed out it will be an everlasting name. It's not a temporary name given to someone, but it's an everlasting name given to them. And this may be what he has reference to in that it is better than that of sons and daughters. The name that we wear on earth is a temporal name because this existence on earth is temporal. But the name that we live, we wear as far as a Christian is concerned is an everlasting name. In other words, what I'm talking about is it's better because it's everlasting, but it's better also because no one can remove that name from you and nobody can strip you of that name. It is an everlasting name for you. And because the name Christians wear is the name Christian, we can approach our God and our Father in prayer. A second passage that we want to consider with reference to the prophetic name Christian is Isaiah 62 and it's also found in verse 2, Isaiah 2, 62, verse 2. And there Isaiah wrote, And the Gentiles shall see thy righteousness, and all kings thy glory. And thou shalt be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord shall call. So in this particular passage, notice the Gentiles are included in this new name. So it's not just simply for the Jews. And remember, Isaiah did prophesy to the Jewish nation. In fact, as we look at the book of Isaiah, it was written somewhere around about 750 B.C. And the nation of Israel had already been taken off into captivity, which was 721 B.C. And the nation of Judah was the, were the only nation the only tribe that was left. Now Isaiah was considered the city preacher. He preached to the city of Jerusalem for the most part. 
Micah was contemporary with Isaiah, but Isaiah, or rather Micah, was considered the country preacher. Does that mean that Micah didn't preach to Jerusalem and, and Isaiah didn't preach to the countryside of Judea? Well, of course not. They preached both to the nation of Judah, but they prophesied concerning the ending of that nation, and it would be destroyed and taken away. And notice that, well, we'll notice that here in just a little bit in another prophecy. But the Gentiles would have a part in it. Were, was there ever a time in the history of Israel, or more specifically in the history of Judah, where the Gentiles had a part in that law? Well, the only way that a Gentile could have a part in the law is to become a proselyte like Rahab the harlot did. So, so it wasn't really given to the Gentile world. It was given to the Israelite world. And we go back to Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, and we can see that the Ten Commandments specifically were given to Israel. And it wasn't for the Gentile world. But the Gentiles would have a part in that new name. And notice also, he went on to say that the new name is, is from a word that carries the idea of fresh or brand new. Now, we use the word new in different ways in our time. You know, I'll say something like, well, I got a new car. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, I bought a new 19... I, one of the brethren up in Eudora, he had three yellow cars. He had a, he had a yellow Mustang, a relatively new, a yellow uh, Corvette, and then he also had a yellow 57 Chevy. And with nice mags on it, raised up a little bit, and had a big engine put in it, and all, all kinds of stuff, chrome, and all, all kinds of different things. And, it, and I was able to sit down in each one of those vehicles. But do you know the one I enjoyed the most? The 57 Chevy. That's what I enjoyed the most. And so I bought a new car. And he, he actually did try to sell me that Mustang, but I wasn't interested in it. I said, I don't think my wife would be very happy with me if I come home in a Mustang. So, but, but be that as it may, you know, it was kind of neat to sit in that car. And I say, I bought a new car. 1957 Mustang, or 1957 um, a Chevy. Well, we understand it's new to me, but it doesn't mean fresh. And then we might say, well, I bought a new car. And then I could talk about it in 2022 or 2023s will be coming out here in, within the few next few months. And so maybe I would buy something like that. But we understand the difference of something that is brand new as opposed to something that's only new to me. Well, in the original language, they had two different words for that. Something that's brand new means something that's fresh. That's the word that's used here. It's a fresh name. It's new name. It's never been used before. So when we get to Acts 11 in verse 26, and the disciples were first called, were called Christians first at Antioch. It was a fresh name. It was truly the first time that word had been used. And so notice Isaiah prophesied who would bestow that name also. 
Now, it does appear in Acts the 11th chapter in verse 26, the Gentiles had a part in the bestowal of that name Christian. But Isaiah prophesied that God would be the one that would bestow that name. Now, whether God used the Gentiles to bestow that name, I'm not sure that that's not the case. But I do know that originally it came from God Almighty. It came from the Father, and He's the one that bestowed that name. Well, then let's go over to Isaiah chapter 65, and let's look at the last time, or the last prophecy that we'll consider with reference to this. In Isaiah 65, in verse number 15, Isaiah wrote, But ye shall leave your name, for a curse unto my chosen. For the Lord God shall slay thee and call his servants by another name. So we notice that it would be an everlasting name. In Isaiah 56, it would be a new name or a fresh name in Isaiah 62. And now in Isaiah 65, it is another name. Now notice also that he said that your name will be left for a curse. And, you know, it is interesting that the name Jew can be used that way. In fact, before I became a member of the church, if, we, if there were somebody a little bit tight and that you wanted to insult them a little bit, you'd call them a Jew. And that's really what it meant, is that they were... They were stubbornly tight with their money and they would sell anything for almost anything so you know it's like uh it's a little bit like what micah would talk about if they could make money on the dust off the dust of your head they would make money off of such things well so it is it is the name jew that has become a curse and we know it from our own generation that that's the way it is i mean after all who did hitler try to kill the Jews. Why did he try to kill the Jews? Because they'd become a cursed name as far as Hitler was concerned. And many people think about it that way. Now, we don't normally, at least people I think about, normally don't think about it that way anymore. I remember one time when I was talking to my father-in-law before I became a member of the church. And in fact, I was just dating Jody at this particular time and said, oh, so-and-so, he's just nothing but a Jew. And my father-in-law said, well, what do you mean by that? Do you mean that they were literally a Jew? Well, I wasn't even sure what he meant by that. And he had to explain it to me a little bit. Well, you know, that's the way that name has become. It's, it, for many, it is an insult to be called such a thing. Now, God's chosen, though, is God's servants of verses 13 and 14 of this same, of this same chapter. In verses 13 and 14, it says, Therefore thus saith the Lord God, Behold, my servant shall eat, but ye shall be hungry. Uh, behold, my servant shall drink, and ye shall be thirsty. Behold, my servant shall rejoice, but ye shall be ashamed. Behold, my servant shall sing for joy of heart, but ye shall cry for sorrow of heart and shall howl for vexation of spirit. Now, there's a contrast Isaiah made concerning his servant 
and those of the world. And his servant are those that will be named by another name. They will be satisfied in life and they'll go through life and be satisfied by the by these things. And God will take care of those needs that they have. But others that cannot rely on God and that do not rely on God, they'll never be satisfied in life. Does that mean they'll go hungry or thirsty? Well, not in a physical sense necessarily, but certainly in a spiritual sense, they will. And so it is the case that God then provides for His people. Does that mean that, that Christians will never go hungry or never go thirsty? As far as this physical world is concerned, yes, sometimes Christians go hungry. Yes, sometimes Christians are thirsty. I can't ever forget about the way that the Ukrainians were when we first moved there and how poor they were. And I remember inviting one young man to McDonald's and, and inviting him there to uh, feed him a meal or to help him out a little bit. And he says, oh, he says, I don't want to get full. He says, I don't think I want to eat there because I'll get full and then I'll know what the hunger is, is about. Well, you know, that's the reality is that sometimes we do get hungry as far as this physical world is concerned, but God still provides for us in many ways. So God's chosen will never be forsaken like the Jews were. They would be taken off into captivity. They'd be taken off into Babylon and the nation of Judah would end for a while and there would be no king over Judah until um, Nehemiah would return and the others that would come back with Nehemiah and Ezra. So they would be taken off because of unbelief. But God's servant, because of belief, will be known by another name. So it is interesting when you look at this prophesied name, that it's an everlasting name, it is a new name, and it's another name. But it helps us to identify that the name Christian is unique in a lot of different ways. You know, there are numerous names within Scripture for Christians. There's numerous names, I should say, within the New Testament for Christians. I mean, there's the name Saint. There's the name Disciple. There is the name Believer. And there are other names similar to that. But there's only one name that was prophesied. I don't know if you've read very much about the Restoration Movement. But when the Restoration Movement began to be, uh, to have unity here in the United States, because there were different people in different places of the United States that started preaching the old gospel and returning to the gospel of Jesus Christ. When those folks began to meet up with each other, they had a debate. And one of the debates that they had was, what shall we call ourselves? And there were some that said, well, we ought to call ourselves Christians. And others were saying, no, we ought to call ourselves disciples. And the one would say, no, we belong to Christ. We ought to call ourselves Christians. And as a body of believers, we ought to call ourselves churches of Christ. While the others were saying, no, we ought to call ourselves disciples because 
the word disciple is used far more times within Scripture, within the New Testament, than the word Christian. And they would argue that the word Christian is only used three times, but how many times do we find the word disciple? Many, many more than that. I've never looked it up. But many, many more than just the three times. So when the restoration movement then divided back in 1908, you have some that took on the term disciples of Christ and others kept the term churches of Christ. Well, that was an ongoing debate. Well, we, many of us, have chosen to use the term Christians because we belong to Christ. Now, remember where I began this lesson? A name is, a, is an identifier. And we identify ourselves as a follower of Jesus. And it was a prophesied name. And because it was a prophesied name, it was also a God-given or divinely given name. We go by Christian. We're not Church of Christ. We're not Church of Christers. And sometimes people will say that. We're not Baptist. We're not Presbyterian. We're not Episcopalian. We're simply Christians. And let us be the follower of Christ that we ought to be. This evening we do want to offer the invitation. There may be someone here that would like to respond to it. And if you would like to respond to it, we invite you to come as together we stand and sing to encourage you.